This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. So let me just read Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose in the Western world, it's easy for people to, to look at the cross in a benign and casual manner, and sometimes in a careless manner. Crosses commonly sit on top of many church spires, many churches within the four walls, you'll see crosses and altars, crosses on the walls, crosses outside the walls. And so we become very accustomed to that. Crosses are emblazoned and adorn ornaments, covers of books, even uh, we wear them around our wrist and around our neck and on our ears as pieces of jewelry. But in the first century, a cross was a thing of horror and humiliation. It was a symbol of the cruelest death known to mankind. It was so horrific that the Romans who used it would never ever crucify one of their own people. It was horrible. It was terrible. It was only for the worst of criminals. And the Romans used it extensively all over their empire. They crucified tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. It was an instrument of terror. It was a spectacle of barbaric execution that was meant to deter and to stop any kind of rebellion against the might of Rome. Every criminal feared it. Every Jew despised it. Every right-thinking person abhorred it. Every Christian had every right to shudder at the very thought of it. And yet, the Apostle Paul says, I boast in it. Or as the old King James says, I glory in the cross. This is the peculiarity of Christianity. Our faith is different in that we make a boast of an instrument of death. We're known as people of the cross. We sing about the cross. We pray about the cross. We preach about the cross. We write about the cross. But the reality is, even though Rome used it extensively, if it hadn't have been for our Lord Jesus Christ dying on a cross, the truth is that history would have long since forgotten about it. would never hardly even know about it unless we read deep into history. But because our Lord Jesus died upon a cross, then we cherish the cross. It's something that we cherish. It's something that we're thankful for. It's something that changed the history of mankind. It's something that changed our history something that changed us forever. The cross was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. 
You remember how Abraham, God spoke to him and told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, the one whom he loved, and take him to the mountains of Moriah and there to offer him as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice unto him. And you remember how that Abraham did that and how Isaac climbed that Mount Moriah with that wood for the altar on his shoulders. And how at the last minute when Abraham was going to slay him, how that God stepped in again and told him there was a ram caught in a thicket and for it to be sacrificed instead. So let's just have a little look again at 22 of Genesis and just refresh yourselves of that tremendous story. In verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God tested Abraham. Now you would think that Abraham being well over 100 years old, you'd think by this time that he had been through all the testing he would ever need to be through. We know that prior to this, his greatest test, of course, was believing that as a 100-year-old man and as a 90-year-old wife that Sarah was, that they could have a child. A child of promise. They believed that for 25 years before that child came. What a man of faith. What a woman of faith. And you would think that having believed God for that and having passed that test of faith, that that would be the end of all tests. That would be the, the epitome of anybody's test. But God said, no, I'm going to test you. And this time, it's going to be your greatest test ever. And so God tells him, take your son, your only son. Now we know technically that wasn't his only son because he had Ishmael, but he was long since gone. He was out of the picture. So in effect, it was his only son. It was the son of promise. Take now your only son and offer him up as a burnt offering. In other words, slay him for me. Now people has all kinds of conjecture on why God asked him to do this. Some have said it's because at that time when Abraham lived that all around him were, were pagan nations who very readily offered up a child of their family to whatever God that they worshipped and adored and obeyed. And so some say, well, maybe God was saying, well, let's see if Abraham loves me that much. Will he be that obedient for me? Some say it's not that, that it's the fact that this was their only son, the son of promise, the one whom they loved dearly. And maybe by this time, maybe their love for their son was overriding their love for God. And so he was tested on his love. The fact is we don't really know. We don't really, really know why God asked him to do this other than he asked him to do it. He gave him no explanations whatsoever. No clues why. Now, can you imagine what must have been going through Abraham's mind? Why? Why are you asking me to do this? Now, it doesn't say he said that, but I'm sure we can assume he was thinking, why do you ask me to do this? This is the son of promise. 
All my hopes, all my dreams, all your promises to me is wrapped up in this one son. This is the one, and in thy seed, <laughs> through Isaac, his seed would be. Through Isaac, a great nation would come. Through Isaac, the nation of Israel would bless the nations of the world. And so he must have, in his mind at least, thinking, God, why are you asking me to do this? But no answer came. This would be, have to be pure obedience to the word of God. And sometimes God may ask us something, not as drastic as that, but to do something without any explanation beforehand. To see, will we obey? Will we trust? Will we believe? Now, in Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham believed that even if he did this, even if he killed his son, that God would raise him up from the dead because he believed the promise that he had been given. No wonder he's the father of faith. What a tremendous man. And so, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah, offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. No hesitation. No wondering, should I do this? No thinking now, God, let, let me think this through for a wee while. Uh, let me see if I've got this right. You actually want me to do this? Boy, I need to think, that's a big thing, I need to think about this. But no, no hesitation. Early in the morning, he was up and ready to obey God. Perhaps he didn't want to wait. Perhaps he thought, if I do wait, maybe I won't do this. Sometimes in obedience, we have to act fairly quickly. And so they head out with everything they needed. And in verse 4, it says, And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. So it's at least a three-day journey to get to the place where he's got to make the supreme sacrifice of his life. Now, can we even begin to imagine what must have been going through his head? He has three days, and all he has got to think about is, at the end of three days, I'm going to have to kill my beloved son because God told me. That's all he can think about. Now, notice it doesn't say anything about Sarah here. Did he tell Sarah? <coughs> Maybe he didn't tell her. Maybe he felt she couldn't handle this. He certainly didn't tell Isaac at this time, and he certainly didn't tell these two lads that went with them. So, in his own thoughts, alone in his own thoughts, for three days, he's thinking, I've got to kill my son. I've got to offer my son as a sacrifice. Now, we know because we, we know the end of the story. We know that God actually didn't want them to kill his son. It was a test. But in his mind, in his mind, 
I've got to do this. See, sometimes we're tested, and this was a test for him, by the way, having to go three days. Sometimes we're tested waiting and waiting and waiting to actually do the thing that God wants us to do. And that gives us opportunity to cool off the idea. Some things now we buy, we sign up for, and it gives you a cooling off period in case you want to change your mind, in case you think it through and think, do you know what? I don't really want to do this. So you get maybe a 14-day cooling off period. So here's a three-day period when he's got a chance to really, 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 really think this. Am I going to do this? And every step he took in this three-day journey, his mind was thinking, I'm going to have to kill my son. Yes, I believe that God will raise him up from the dead, but I'm going to have to kill him. No easy task, is it? It's a big ask. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place afar off, and Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Hmm. Obedience and faith. Incredible faith. You know, I've said two or three times, and you can read it in, in Hebrews 11, that he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. There was no precedent for that. He couldn't look back in history and say, well, God raised somebody from the dead back there. No precedent. Naked faith in God that he would do that. Why would he do it? Because he gave me his word. He gave me his promise. But from my seed would come a great nation. And I'm going to trust his word. I've proven his word before in the past. I'm going to trust and prove it now. It says, and the lad and I will go yonder. By the way, when it says the lad, it's a very loose term, that, in the Old Testament. <laughs> in Genesis 46, Benjamin had 10 children, and he was called the lad. <laughs> so this is not a wee boy. He's a grown man by this time. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. The very altar that Isaac was going to be sacrificed on was laid on his back. Does that remind you of someone? Does that remind you of someone walking up a hill with wood on his back to become a sacrifice? Because all of this is a type, a kind of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father causing him to die for us. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now he's a grown man. He's sensible. He's now suspicious. He's thinking. This is not adding up. 
Any time we had a sacrifice, there was always a lamb. I see the fire, I see the wood, I'm carrying it, but I don't see the lamb, I don't see a sacrifice. So he's beginning to wonder what's going on here. Now obviously up to this point, the father hadn't told him. But he's just been obedient to his father. The two of them went together, it says. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Again, so the two of them went together. Now at this point, Abraham doesn't know what God's going to do next. All he knows is, my son is the lamb. He's the sacrifice. He's the burnt offering. He doesn't know it yet. He's asking me where the sacrifice is, but actually it's him. But I haven't told him yet. You can almost feel the tension in the air between them at the moment. Because Isaac's realizing, hey, something's, something's going on here. And the dad's not telling him just yet. He says, don't worry. God will provide the lamb. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, obviously, obviously, because we don't know the, the exact time here, but obviously, from he said, God will provide a lamb until he tied him up, he must have actually said to his son Isaac, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. You're the lamb. It's you I've got to kill today. See, sometimes we read over these things uh, to try to put yourself in the pit. How would you feel? If you were Isaac, how would you feel? And Isaac, being a full-grown man, Abraham's an old man now, if Isaac didn't want to do this, Abraham would be no physical match for him. So that tells us that Isaac was willing. He too, like his father, was willing to lay down his life. If that's what God wanted, and my father knows God's voice, he's heard it many times, it's always been true, it's always come to pass, so therefore I will submit myself, I will submit my life into the hands of my father. Whenever you're dealing with types in the Old Testament, you can't stress and press every point. Because the reality is, even though this is a type of Jesus, but the reality is Jesus knew before he ever came here that he would be the Lamb of God. He knew that. Who will go for us? Who shall I send? Here am I, Lord, send me. So you only push a type so far. It's a good type. It's a good illustration. But you can't press every single point. 
So Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. I wondered, did their eyes meet at that point? I wondered that Isaac looked up at his dad, and his dad looked down at him. Or I wondered, did both of them close their eyes? And the angel of the Lord called from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. Double emphasis because he knew he was going to plunge that knife. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. (sighs) Isn't that beautiful? It came that close. And it's obvious that Abraham was prepared to do it, and it's obvious Isaac was prepared to let him do it. And God says, you don't need to. The point has been proven. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Remember what Isaac said earlier? Father, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the lamb? Remember what Abraham answered? My son, God will provide himself a lamb, the lamb. But instead he got a ram didn't get a lamb, he got a ram. Why? Because this is only a type. The lamb was kept until Jesus came. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was the real lamb of God, the real sacrifice. And he had to die for us. The father would not hold back. His son would have to die in our place. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And it said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Or Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see to it. That actually means the Lord will provide. And the Lord did see to it then, and he saw to it thousands of years later. He saw to it for us. He provided for us. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. And blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as of the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then just notice something here in verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it's obvious, almost without saying, that Isaac and Abraham and the young man returned. 
But Isaac's not mentioned there. In fact, we hear nothing more about Isaac, not a peep, until the next big event in his life, which was when he got his bride, Rebecca. Hmm. The Lord has gone back to heaven. And the next biggest event for him is when he gets his bride, us. And if you're reading that story, you'll see that's the next big event. Next big event for Jesus is coming for his bride, for us. The old hymn says, When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What a savior. What a gospel we've got. See, the cross is important to us because it's where Jesus died. And he had to be hung on a tree. It had to be that way. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Had to be cursed for our sake. Took the curse of sin upon him. One of the laws in interpreting scripture is the principle of first mention. And that is that when something is mentioned first, and there's a lot of first mentions in Genesis, obviously, because it's the beginning. But where something is mentioned first, it, it sets the tone uh, for, for the rest of the, the concept of that word or idea. So you can follow it through in Scripture. And right here in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Mount Moriah is one such first principle. It's the first mention in Scripture of the word love. First time it's mentioned. The Holy Spirit waited 22 chapters before he wrote love. Genesis 2, 22, 2. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. First time it's mentioned. Love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Love is the first of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Second shortest verse in the Bible is 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Now, old Henry Morris, he points out something that I think is just, is just great. He says that when love is first mentioned in Genesis 22, it isn't speaking about the love between a man and a woman or the love between a mother and her children, or brotherly love, or the love that somebody may have for their country, or even love that God, man's got for God. It's speaking about the love of a father to his son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you 
love. And it's particularly referring to this incident where the father has taken his son up to Mount Moriah, the one whom he loves to sacrifice him. And so the Holy Spirit waits for 22 chapters before he can give us the the most beautiful expression and the deepest expression of love that there can possibly be. And it's a love that's self-sacrificing, that love that's prepared to give everything. And this is all the more meaningful, of course, when we translate that into the love that the Father had for his Son, that God the Father had for God the Son, that he too was willing to sacrifice him on that wooden altar on Mount Calvary. Let me just quickly just read a couple of verses here. You don't need to turn to this in Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac shall your seed be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. But God the Father went further not only was he prepared to offer him up, but he actually offered him up. (laughs) He literally, actually offered up his son for us. Now, first mention of love in the Bible is the love of the godly father to his son. And this is where we see the greatest example of this love in the Old Testament. And the greatest example of this love in the New Testament is God the Father loving his own Son. This existed long before the world ever came into being. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Note this, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So this love between Father and Son was before this world was ever even in being. The old Morris points this out, and I think this is truly wonderful. In the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're known as the synoptic Gospels, and, and let me just say to you one more time, synoptic is a compound word, it's two words, syn, S-Y-N, and optic. And syn means together. An optic means to see, to see together. And so the first three Gospels are a lot of similarities. Some of the parables repeat it. Some of the miracles repeat it. Some of the sermons Jesus preached are repeated. So there's lots of similarities. But John's Gospel is decidedly different. Because in John's Gospel, his great emphasis is two things. To show that he is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. And it begins that way. And also to show the love of God. The love of God. In fact, in John's gospel, the word love is used more than all the other three gospels put together used it. So no wonder he's called the apostle of love. And if you read his epistles, you'll see again, he's an old man, he's 90, and he's still talking about love and us loving one another. So his whole life is measured in love. 
Now, this is interesting. In the New Testament, the first mention of love is the clearest expression of the love that God the Father had for his Son. And you find it in Matthew 3, 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then again in Mark's gospel, first mention of love, Mark 1.11, then came a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And lo and behold, in Luke's gospel, again, the first mention of love is also at Christ's baptism, Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So right at the outset of the New Testament, three times it is recorded that God declares his love for his son. So we're under no illusion that the father loves the son and that the son loves the father. But John, as we look into the gospel of God's love and the gospel of God's son, written by the beloved disciple John, we are amazed because the first mention of love, can anybody guess where it might be in John's gospel? Anybody hazard a guess? Correct. Correct, Joyce. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, us. He loves us. And John makes that absolutely clear. The other three writers make it clear that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. But John makes it clear that the Father loves us. And John knew that Jesus loved him because he only ever referred himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. First John 4, 9 11. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So no wonder we have something to boast about tonight. No wonder we too, like Paul, can glory in the cross because God could not prove his love any greater way than allowing his son to die in our place. And John says, God loves the world. He loves us. And he proved that by giving his only son. And so we have something, we have someone to boast in tonight. We can boast in Christ and we can boast in his cross. By the way, Mount Moriah is where the Temple Mount is in Jerusalem. And the Jews believe that's the place. Right there, that's the place where Abraham took Isaac up to slay him. But the Muslims believe that's the place where Abraham took Ishmael up to slay him. And it's a great contentious place, even to this very day, after thousands of years. 
that we can boast in Christ tonight and we can boast in his cross. Here's what I want to how to end this tonight. If we can get this working okay. Uh, I was listening to a powerful song this weekend. Somebody sent me the link and it's a powerful song. And it's about the blood of Christ. Some of you maybe know the song. Some of you have maybe heard it before. I don't know, but it may be fresh to many of you. But whenever we listen to it, it's a powerful song. Think of Christ and what he's done for us. And how he went to that cross and how he actually literally shed his blood for us. And how it's changed our lives forever. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.